Hi guys, welcome to episode four. In this episode, I'm actually going to cover, is the gut forcing us into these extreme nutrition outlines? And so it's really a hypothesis of mine is that whatever's going on in the gut is forcing us to sort of jump around from nutrition outline to nutrition outline because we can't metabolize, we can't break down certain nutrients properly, certain foods that shouldn't be a problem all of a sudden become a problem. And to avoid that sort of inflammatory load that these foods are causing, we sort of are forced into a particular outline that we think is the formula for the rest of our life, but it's really the complications that are arising in the gut that are really causing this to happen. And I'm going to actually bring up a lot of examples So I think when it comes to nutrition, there's a lot of confusion out there, okay? And, you know, we've got ketogenic outline, we've got a paleo outline, there's vegan, vegetarian, high fat, whatever whatever that sort of outline is. And I'm not sort of dismissing the advantages of these particular outlines and especially for certain ailments that they they, they definitely serve a purpose. But one thing I really want to get across is I don't believe in a particular nutritional outline for the rest of your life. Um, And because your microbiome is so dependent on diversity and food rotation and even to ease pressure off things like your lymphocytes actually help with your secondary line of defense, your immune system, we do want diversity and we do want uh, food rotation because you build up a sensitivity extremely quickly to things like proteins and fibers okay um and a lot of the time you know when certain people are just consuming the same foods over and over again it can cause like an overstimulation of the immune system like an overactive immune system this essentially may come up in your blood markers you know um you know particular sort of pro-inflammatory white blood cells like your basophils and your sonophils um, and even coming out in terms of you having low lymphocytes, which means you, you've got more pro-inflammatory activity going on in the body, particular protein markers like globulin, they may be actually elevated, which means you've got high immunoglobin activity. So, and I see this a lot of the time when I'm look, actually looking at blood markers. It's not uncommon. And a, a major reason behind this is actually can be that people, um, they've got a lot of like, um, there's a lack of food rotation uh, with their nutrition. So, and uh, once again, with this confusion with nutrition, you know, if we look at things like ancestral, epigenetics, this where it can get quite murky is a lot of the time we're mixed race now. So it's, it's getting harder to define ancestrally what sort of nutrition outline we may have been a little bit better adapted to. Um, and so if I give you a couple of examples here, we could say that because certain carbohydrate sources may be a little bit more frequently common um, in areas around the uh, equator, we could say, well, um, people who originated closer to the equator potentially had more carbohydrates in their diet. Now, I'm not anti people going a little bit high with their carbohydrates. There's definitely advantages to this. You know, it can help with things like serotonin. Now, especially people who have a lot of stress, um, you know, uh, this, this can have some advantages to helping to relax and calm them. 
It can also help with the, the GLUT4 protein, which is a, uh, a particular protein molecule that helps with glucose homeostasis. So there's, there's advantages here. Um, but if we actually look at this a little bit further, we, you, know, you might look at uh, places like Rwanda, which is definitely close to the equator. You know, they roughly had about like 82% of their nutrition outline coming from carbohydrates. If you actually look at uh, particular areas like Bangladesh, well, they may have as high as uh, 80% of their breakdown coming from carbohydrates. And then potentially places like Ethiopia, they, they, they may have had about 76%. But one point that I want to sort of bring up here is that doesn't mean that this is the optimal diet, okay? And I can, I can go a little bit deeper with this because a lot of you actually look at a lot of these countries and there's definitely uh, socioeconomic constraints, okay? Like the one thing I know with um, healthy eating and looking after yourself, it's sort of like a privilege nowadays. It's expensive, okay? And I'm not, I'm not disputing that. And a lot of the things that I tell people they should be doing from a nutrition perspective, supplementation, it costs money. And, and it's, one of my goals is to really reverse this so it's actually available to everyone, okay? So um, and I'll give you the example, like somewhere like Peru, which is definitely clo- uh, closer to the equator. Now, we could say that they have more things like beans, uh, rice, and once again, I'm not taking away from how um, nutritionally dense these certain foods can actually be. Well, if I actually look at things like kidney beans and black beans, and you look at the example of black beans, so yes, there can be problems when you've got gastrointestinal issues from the perspective of things like lectins, uh, like phytates, like anti-nutrients, but they are very high in uh, vitamin B5, which is panathenic acid. Now, panathenic acid is one of the key micronutrients that you need for acetyl coenzyme A that helps with steroidal hormones, so things like testosterone, progesterone, okay? but it also helps with ATP, adenosine triphosphate, so it helps with energy. So I'm not taking away from the, and, 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 and even just from a fiber perspective, helping with microbiome ratios, so I'm not taking away from the, the, the benefits here, yeah, okay? But if you have these socioeconomic constraints, then maybe all you can really afford is things like beans and rice. Um, and I actually remember watching a documentary once and they actually talked about that where, where poverty is a, is a big concern in areas like Peru, that they'd actually save their money and they'd actually save it for things like animal lard, so like animal fat, yeah, okay? Now, why? Because it's just calorie dense, yeah, okay? And so you look at, and as I said, I don't think we should be demonizing any of the particular uh, macronutrients because all three are important, yeah, okay? But when um, money is concerned and we don't really have things available to us all the time, then most of the time we're going to go things that are going to sustain us for a longer period of time. And essentially, things like fats and proteins, yeah, okay? Well, you look at the brain, well, 50% of the brain is made up of saturated fat. Our steroidal hormones are really dependent on cholesterol. Yes, 70% of the cholesterol uh, from the body is synthesized from the liver, but we're also dependent on dietary cholesterol as well. And actually things like uh, chyle and lymph, which are key sort of, uh, it's like a, a lymph is like a milky white substance that we really need for the lymphatic system. Um, and that actually helps with clearance of waste in our cells, uh, but also plays a big role in white blood cells, yeah, okay? Well, one of the key components that actually helps with this is like saturated fats, in particular saturated fats like myristic acid, luric acid, which we actually get out of things like coconut oil. My point being is that 
is that really how their nutritional outline is really geared to be? Is that really optimal for these particular populations and potentially not? Now, if I look at in Kenya, you know, the Masai Mara, well, they have up to about 66% of their nutrition outline coming from saturated fats. Now, that's coming from animal protein, uh, you know, things like animal blood. And once again, they essentially are near the equator. Yeah, okay. So once again, this is where it can get a little bit like murky. Yeah, okay. So, and if we look at areas like maybe like Scandinavia, you look at areas like Iceland, you look at uh, the native like Inuits, okay, well, potentially up to about 95% of their breakdown was coming from animal fats and animal protein. Um, but once again, it's sort of what they needed to survive in the environment that they were living in, yeah, okay? They, were, they would really just go for what was going to nourish them in their environment for the longest period of time. And I really do believe that's really what it comes down to. The, the unfortunate thing in, like in Western society, in that environment has heavily changed. So now we're exposed to heavy amounts of plastics, heavy metals, pollutants. So that can definitely change in terms of what, what the body requires from a nutritional perspective to help us flourish in that environment. Okay, so it gets a, it gets a little bit murky, and you know, if I, even if I look at the Scandinavians, well, the Scandinavians um, definitely consume a, a, a lot of things like dairy. Now, I'm talking about good quality dairy, because um, what I really think needs to stop when it comes to nutrition is the demonization of particular food groups. Like dairy has, you know, huge advantages. It's got glucose lingolipids that actually helps with gastrointestinal infections. It's got immunoglobulins. Uh, it's got things like proline peptides. These are things that uh, help to protect things like the gastrointestinal lining, our immune system. Okay, you look at butter. It's got Wolzen factor, and Wolzen factor actually helps us to drive calcium into the bones, so helping with the integrity of the of, uh, of our actual internal structures. So there's a lot of advantages here. Now, yes, ancestrally. You know, because if we look at something like dairy, where our ability to produce lactase, which is a particular enzyme that we actually produce within the epithelium in our gastrointestinal lining, to actually help us metabolize glucose molecules like lactose, okay, um, well, that can range from 1% to 95%. Okay? Now, if you look at oriental people, they can be definitely down the lower end of the spectrum, like closer to the, to the, to the 1% or closer to that to that lower end and then if you look at the scandinavians because essentially northern europeans and scandinavians um and especially you look at the swiss and the french you know um higher um animal fat um and things like dairy consumption i'm talking about good quality dairy here yeah okay I'm not talking about pasteurized dairy um because you got to look at it you don't have the same issues with uh things like lactase when it comes from you, you look at things like butter well the, the amount of lactase or the, uh, the amount of lactose in, in something like butter is negligent, okay? So this is, uh, this is really interesting, but if we're, if we're going to deal with something like pasteurized dairy, well, pasteurized dairy, the, it, it doesn't contain lactase. So it doesn't contain the enzyme to help you break down lactose. So the problem is, if you're already sitting down the lower end of the spectrum from an ancestral perspective, then you've got gastrointestinal issues. So you've got structural problems with the epithelium uh, and so issues with the, the, 
the not just the brush borders but the actual structure of the cell itself then that can impede on your ability to release particular enzymes like lactase to help you break down lactose and the issue here being a glucose molecule is potentially the lactose can sit there it ferments and then it encourages bacterial overgrowth so things like SIBO like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth okay so the, the, the point that I'm really trying to get across, yeah, okay, is you can see how this, be, this, this becomes quite murky and hence why the gut can really change essentially what we're really underlying normally like, okay? So, you know, because if you have things like intestinal permeability, if you have like splitting of the epithelium, um, and so you have damage to areas like the small intestine, the large intestine, that is going to impede on how you metabolize particular macronutrients how you assimilate uh, micronutrients and and basically just completely change how you interact with food okay but naturally underlying you may do better eating a little bit more animal protein and animal fats uh, or on the on the on the flip side you may actually do better consuming a more plant-based um, plant-based outline or a vegan outline like i'm not disputing that and this is where um, once again, when you've got gut issues, it can get ex- extremely murky. Yeah, okay. Um, but you know, if I if I look at that sort of like uh, Scandinavian example again, okay. So they 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 potentially just going to do and, and Northern Europeans doing a lot better on things like good quality dairy, uh, slightly higher consumption of um, animal proteins, but. If you've got underlying issues there where potentially you might have issues with things like hydrochloric acid and hydrochloric acid is produced in the, 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 the small paratel cells in the, in the lining of the stomach and if you're struggling with hydrochloric acid, that's going to um, impede on your ability to separate the fats from protein, also to break down the protein into um, chains of amino acids and, and, and eventually further down the chain into singular amino acids that give us the building blocks for things like neurotransmitters, hormones, um, tripeptide molecules like glutathione. Um, so completely affecting like the, the sort of cascade effect in the body. So what can potentially happen here is that you're really struggling to metabolize things like animal proteins. And so you essentially sort of get off put by the thought of eating things like animal proteins okay so you get nausea you get abdominal cramping uh, you get things like um, gut distension like stomach distension so it's quite high up in the digestive system belching bad breath okay so the, the the point being is that you may ancestrally or from an epigenetics perspective be more on that spectrum but because of the gastrointestinal problems you have it's actually forcing you into potentially a more extreme nutrition outline. And I, I can just give example after example after example, which I'm definitely going to do, yeah, okay? So let's look at something like, uh, uh, like even like a high-fat diet. Now, I really want to clear things up here. I'm not really going to touch too much on like a ketogenic outline um, because a ketogenic outline, the real advantage here is to get into ketosis, providing an alternative fuel source for, um, yeah, for, the, for the brain, um, so, you know, and, and helping with particular protein molecules that help with the repair of synapses, helping with uh, uh, essentially new, like, cells, uh, helping to repair damaged cells. So that particular protein molecule was, is called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So I'm not really going to go into 
all the advantages of going into a ketogenic outline. Me personally, I think the best way to get into ketosis is just to fast. Now, once again, I'm not going to go further down that rabbit hole, okay? But the problem is uh, with the ketogenic outline is that your breakdown is about 85% fats, really, if, if you're going into a true ketogenic, and about 10% coming from protein, and then about 5% from uh, vegetables and, and carbohydrates, yeah, okay? The, the, the problem here is that when people stay on this nutrition outline for too long a period of time, you definitely can shift your microbiome balance, okay? And I'm going to go into that a lot more because your microbiome balance will shift according to your macronutrient breakdown. There's no doubt about that, yeah, okay, because um, you need particular types of microbiome to help you assimilate particular compounds, particular molecules found in foods. You know, if I give you the example of, um, you know, if you're eating less vegetable fibers and less good quality carbohydrates, so that would be things like buckwheat, quinoa, you know, a lot of the phytonutrient-dense grains, like uh, red rice and black rice, well, these essentially help with a particular broad group of bacteria called bifidobacterium. Now, there's about 32 different strains of bifidobacterium, so, and I'm not going to essentially break down every singular, singular strain, but it actually helps to balance out things like uh, TH1 and TH2 activities, so I'm talking about pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory activities, so it actually helps to bring uh, balance back to the seesaw. It actually helps with IgE complications. Um, so I'm talking about like histamine reactions, so helping with uh, food sensitivities, food intolerances, allergies, um, so things like hay fever, um, and, and also like uh, skin rashes. So actually helping with all those types of things, but it also helps with GABA, which is gamma aminobutyric acid, which actually helps to calm and relax the brain. So if I've shifted myself into this, you know, ketogenic outline, then I sort of, because you initially, there's no doubt about it, you're, you're, of course you're going to feel good because you're helping with ketones and you're helping with all those things that I said about helping with the brain and so forth. Okay, So shifting into that, of course you're going to feel good and there, there's, there's examples of that with many different nutritional outlines. Okay, But then you just think that's the answer for the rest of your life. So you just stay on that particular nutritional outline long term, but then you will start to encounter problems because now you're going to see some issues with your microbiome balance. And all of a sudden, you might find that you're more uh, wired, that you can't relax at night because you're starting to have issues with GABA. Um, you potentially, because with bifidobacterium, it actually helps... Um, with um, things like uh, preventing things like gastroenteritis, so um, being upset in the in the in the stomach, and it also helps protect you against particular uh, pathogens and foodborne pathogens like things like Salmonella. So you might actually find find that you're just more prone to these things. Yeah, okay. So there's this complication, okay, because you, this is why we need the diversity, and this is why we need to shift it to a particular. Uh, regime, a, a different regime to actually help with the diversity um, within the uh, within the gastrointestinal lining, okay, and also because your, your your particular microbiome they're actually involved in the assimilation and the metabolization of particular molecules that we actually need for the building blocks for. Uh, things like neurotransmitters and also hormones, yeah, okay? So that's why you can find that it can completely shift your hormonal and your neurological um, uh, biochemistry, okay? So 
Yeah, so if I actually um, continue to, to actually use like some of these examples, yeah, okay. So another reason when people shift to something like a ketogenic outline that they might actually find that they feel extremely good is because of the underlying gastrointestinal problems that they have. Because you essentially look at like a high-fat diet and it's like anti-inflammatory. And especially I just look at the interaction with things like vegetable fibres and prebiotics um, and actually helping with like short-chain fatty acids, if I just use that example. But basically when we consume things like uh, prebiotics and things that actually help with short-chain fatty acids, so some of the things I'm talking about here is like resistant starch, so things like uh, cold potato, just as an example, things like pectin, so the skin on particular fruits, so it might be lemon rind, lime rind. Um, you actually look at uh, FOSs, like fruit to oligosaccharides, so things like onions, garlic, inulin, uh, something that you would get from like onion. Um, you look at something like uh, like hydrolyzed or partially hydrolyzed guar gum. Okay, um, so and you look at like soluble fiber, like these are some of the, the sort of key things that act as prebiotics and essentially they actually help with microbiome um, balance and microbiome ratios and the examples of soluble fiber would be things like zucchini sweet potato okay so and how essentially it should happen is that when we're uh, essentially breaking down the food and then it gets passed down into the large intestine where it's essentially like indigestible matter we've got about 400 different species or bacteria in the large intestine and the, the bacteria in the large intestine come along they feed on the indigestible matter and then basically that allows them to produce the short chain fatty acids and the short chain fatty acids so things like butyrate propionate acetate valerate and then they actually help with all these amazing uh, functions within the body whether that be like the the absorption of calcium whether it be helping with the production of things like uh, glucose in the liver which like propionate does okay actually helping with things like GABA helping with acetyl coenzyme A so helping with our energy like acetate does so and in the instance of butyrate helping to reduce inflammation um, but also it actually helps with the production of T regulatory cells and the role of the T regulatory cells is to allow us to recognize our own immune system and protecting us from autoimmune disease. Yeah, okay? And so this is the interaction that basically should be taking place. Now, people who have like um, uh, things like IBD, irritable bowel disorders, IBS, like irritable bowel syndrome and most of the time that means it's going to be things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, intestinal permeability, microbiome imbalances, okay? So they're definitely going to have fermentation issues within the gut and also including this group is like people uh, um, with weight management issues, so cardiovascular problems, heart disease, okay, metabolic syndrome and obesity, okay? So they've definitely got fermentation issues within the gut, okay? And so that's going to actually affect how their microbiome because we should have roughly about 85% of our bacteria makeup being good and about 15% being bad. And it doesn't mean the bad is, is, is we don't need it. Like there's this symbiotic relationship between your good and your bad bacteria. So even things that we sort of demonize, things like yeast and candida, okay, there is a symbiotic relationship and it's just important that we just um, help with the the, the actual terrain that actually help, helps to house the microbiome, okay, and we actually help with maintaining a, a good ratio of this 
microbiome because that allows us to interact with the food properly. And then if the particular microbiome and examples of this might be Escherichia coli or E. coli and things like Enterococcus, one of the major roles of Enterococcus, good, good way to understand if you potentially got some Enterococcus issues is that you'll tend to have... Uh, uh, tea sensitivity, okay, so, um, you know, a sensitivity to hot and cold with your teeth because a lot of your enterococcus is actually found within your mouth. You've got like 40 different species there. And that can be a good sign that you've got the issues in the large intestine. But these types of microbiome, enterococcus being a positive gram and Escherichia coli being a negative gram, is they come along, they feed on the indigestible matter, and that allows us to produce the short-chain fatty acids. Hence why, most of the time, what are they going to say? Well, you don't really need the short-chain fatty acids out of your nutritional outline because you get it from that interaction. My argument is, yes, in a perfect scenario, that is the case. Okay, But what happens if it's not a perfect scenario? Because most of the time, what we're holding up on things like Wikipedia and Dr. Google and is we're holding up the perfect scenario. And we're saying, well, this is what happens, so that's always what happens. Well, no, not if you've got all those conditions and all those ailments that I was talking about. That's completely changing how you interact with the food. And if you've got an overgrowth of something like negative gram bacteria so and, 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 and pathogenic strains like Citrobacter, Klebsiella, um, Enterobacter, uh, and I, would, I don't want to demonize uh, all these bacterial strains um, because you know, Klebsiella in very small amounts is part of a normal ecology. But essentially, if you've got a higher ratio of these things, they're coming along, they're feeding on the indigestible matter, and they're not, they're not really producing, they're not producing the short-chain fatty acids. And then all these advantages that I was talking about with the short-chain fatty acids, you're missing out on these, and then you can actually be more prone to things like autoimmune conditions. Now, do we really need to scratch our head here and try to understand why autoimmune conditions are just going through the roof, okay? So you can understand if I've got this issue and now, now essentially I'm getting discomfort when I'm interacting with things like FOSs, like fruit to oligosaccharides, so onions and garlic, and they give me things like bloating and gassiness. And once again, I don't want to demonize these things because they're prebiotics. They actually help with the epithelium, so they actually help with the, with the structure of the gut lining, okay? But if I'm interacting with these in a negative way, and the problem is, is also when the ratio of the bacteria, where I've got more opportunistic and more pathogenic bacteria, they're also releasing more byproducts, like things like LPS, like lipopolysaccharides, which is like fatty acid molecules, long-chain carbohydrate molecules. I'm releasing more of these into the, into the bloodstream, and the problem is it catabolizes um, particular you know, compounds like glutathione, and when it's catabolizing my glutathione pools, and that's affecting how much glutathione I synthesize from the liver, because you need glutathione to help you clear things like xenobiotics and xenoestrogens, then that means all of a sudden now things that like plastics and heavy metals, um, they start to accumulate in the body. And in the instance of heavy metals, they will start to cross the blood-brain barrier, get up in the brain, actually cause uh, issues with areas like the cerebellum, uh, impede things like acetylcholine, so short-term to long-term memory, muscle contraction, and also impede uh, particular areas like nigra, where 50% of your dopamine supply is actually uh, produced from. So then you actually find that you have a lack of motivation, get up and go. So you can see the, the, the huge negative cascade effect 
that actually happens in the body as a consequence. So what actually people might find when they've actually got these issues is that they, 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 they may try a particular nutritional outline. So in this instance, I use the example of like a, a ketogenic diet or a high-fat outline. I'm going to touch on a high-fat outline a little bit more because it's definitely different because that's about 45 to 50% of your breakdown coming from good quality fats and a diversity of good quality fats. And that's, that's the, the, the more important point here, okay? But that means if I start to eat... Uh, particular uh, fats that actually have short-chain fatty acids, well, now I'm getting the short-chain fatty acids directly from the food source. Now, if I've got that interaction problem with the indigestible matter and the microbiome, is that going to solve that problem? Well, yes. Now now I'm going to get the short-chain fatty acids, so all those amazing uh, functions that the short-chain fatty acids help with, they, they're going to improve, so I'm going to feel good. It's, it's, just, it's just logic, yeah, okay? And so... If you look at the types of foods that contain short-chain fatty acids, being things like, you know, raw milk. Um, you know, I'm not going to get into the, the whole debate with raw milk, but it's definitely got a lot of things like immunoglobulins, uh, glucosylingolipids actually help with gastrointestinal infections. So it's got a lot of compounds that actually help with the immune system. Things like raw butter, raw cream, well, they actually have the short-chain fatty acids in them. So things like the butyrate, the propionate, and the acetate, and so I'm getting it directly from the food source. So that's why people with things like IBD, IBS, um, obesity, metabolic syndrome, they, they, they'll find that they actually just feel a lot better because now they're not getting this negative interaction that they're having with the indigestible matter and they don't have these like fermentation issues. Yeah, okay. So of course they're going to feel better on a ketogenic outline or high fat outline okay but my point being is that's not that doesn't mean that's the outline they should be staying on for the rest of their life because it is affecting their diversity when it comes to their microbiome and then further down the line it's going to affect areas like hormonal balance and it's actually going to affect uh, neurological balance affecting their neurotransmitters as well okay so and the other thing that I want to touch on with something like a, like a ketogenic outline, okay, is that if you stay on a, a, a ketogenic outline where you're consuming about 85% of your breakdown coming from fats, okay, over time you actually stimulate a particular fat-storing hormone that's called ASP, which is acylation stimulating protein, yeah, okay? And so if people find on a ketogenic outline, which is probably not the major reason they went on the outline in the first place, okay, is that they start storing fat around the midline. Okay, um, and the, the the interesting thing is when you start stimulating stimulating more acylation stimulating protein, that also stimulates the production of insulin. So now essentially you've got two fat storing hormones, and you're finding that you're getting that midline belly fat, and you're just putting on more body fat. Okay, hence why for for these and and the irony is okay, like people who've got these microbiome balances and so forth. Most of the time, they've got damage to the mucosal cells, so they've got damage to the epithelium in the large intestine, small intestine, so you can actually have permeability in both, um, both sections of the, 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 the major intestines, the large, small intestine. Okay? And so the issue here being, like in the, in the small intestine, if I'm struggling to release bile from the enterocytes, uh, struggling to release, release bile salts, and bile salts actually have antimicrobial properties, so they make sure that we don't have uh, pathogenic and opportunistic bacteria proliferating in the small intestine. Okay? And also, 
you know, I'm struggling, um, I'm struggling to release things like mycelizing factors to actually help with the emulsification of the fats, okay? Well, the irony here is that you're actually struggling with fat emulsification, so you're actually struggling with the metabolization of fat. So when we initially get gastrointestinal problems, fats are one of the first macronutrients that you actually really struggle with, but the irony is they tend to be the major macronutrient that you probably need initially, Okay, so, and if you've got this issues, you might, this particular issue that you might actually find that you've got things like triglycerides, cholesterol, uh, fat globules actually in your stool, and your, 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 your stool might actually be a little bit like a cow pat, might be pretty smelly, not like on and off, not like all the time. You actually might have like oil slicks in your stool, okay? And also your stools tend to float because if you look at something like slow-cooked meats, um, a lot of the fat floats to the top. And essentially, same process is sort of going on with your stool. So you tend to find, and also some discoloration to your stool. So it tends to be light, a little bit pale in colour, and it also tends to be the colour of the food that you've just consumed, Okay, so if I've got these fat emulsification issues because of the damage in the gastrointestinal lining that basically um, has led to opportunistic bacteria like negative gram bacteria overgrowth or that might be things like yeast, candida, whatever that, um, that opportunistic bacteria that's taking advantage of that situation might be, okay, then the, the, the reality is if I go something like 85% fats, do you think that potentially could pose a problem to how I'm breaking down such an excessive amounts of fat? Okay, like that, that's guaranteed. Hence why I'm, I'm much bigger on the spectrum of going like a higher fat outline. So once again, about 45 to 50% getting it from, you know, uh, a diversity of fats. So things like avocado oil, like help, helping with like monounsaturated fats, like olive oil. Okay, yes, things like uh, avocados, okay. Once again, they can pose a little bit of a problem on the on the on the FODMAP realms, okay. In terms of if you do have things like SIBO, but that's a, that's a conversation for for another time. But it doesn't mean they're not good. They're very high in phosphorus. They're very high in lots of minerals. Um, so, and then getting things that actually help to reduce inflammation. Like one of the best ones is like macadamia nuts. Macadamia oil has a better ratio between omega-3 and omega-6s. Um, it has a thing called palmitoic acid, which is omega-7, which actually helps to mitigate CRP, which is C-reactive protein, which is all to do with like pro-inflammatory activity in the body. Okay, so, um, you know, getting like things like oily fish, slow-cooked meats, uh, to, to get um, even like uh, good amounts of like saturated fats. But once again, getting it from uh, good quality fat sources, but also getting a diversity in the types of fats, okay? Because even when you look at the saturated fat um, sort of debate, not all saturated fats are created equal. And that's why I really love things like, uh, like coconut oil because it's really high in myristic acid and myristic acid, myristic acid actually helps your white blood cells recognize pathogens and microorganisms, okay? Um, and you actually look at luric acid, and luric acid actually helps to boost up things like testosterone, and you find that in coconut oil. And also if you include a little bit more like medium-chain fatty acids, which would be things like ghee, really high in butyrate. So once again, it helps with those aspects that I was talking about with butyrate. Um, uh, coconut oil, MCT oil, and like goat's products are quite high in medium-chain fatty acids. Benefit here, a little bit more medium-chain fatty acids, and the medium-chain fatty acids... Um, uh, 
essentially convert it into energy very quickly. So, and they don't put a lot of pressure on like things like pancreatic enzymes, and they don't put as much pressure on the gastrointestinal uh, tract as things like long chain fatty acids. Yeah, okay. So, once again, getting it from uh, good quality fats, and then potentially getting a little the, your next breakdown, like about like thirty percent coming from. Uh, proteins and then in the realms of about 25% coming from uh, vegetable fibers and dependent on the individual what type of things like tubers and carbohydrates may be better for that because that's that's a that's a conversation for another time because that's really going to depend on the individual and what's internally going on with them yeah okay so my point being here is that you can see how the complications within the gut can actually force you into a particular nutritional outline, something like ketogenic, where you just think that's the answer for the rest of your life because it's going to reduce inflammation, you are going to feel better, but if without actually fixing the problem, which is the bacterial overgrowth and what's actually going on in the gastrointestinal lining, you're just going to stay on that nutrition outline and then you're going to start to get complications associated with the, the microbiome imbalances, okay? Um, and so I'm going to use a, a few more examples, okay? And so the big thing I want to talk about is you look at these, these extremes, okay, and two of the major extremes that are coming out at the moment is we've got like a vegan or heavy plant-based outline. And so I just want to clear things up, guys. I'm not saying that certain people don't do well on a plant-based and a, and a vegan outline. And most of the time, I, I just believe people are going blindly into it and they might actually fall into the category of the people who don't actually do that well on it, okay? And likewise, carnivore is the other nutrition outline that's really coming to the fore, okay? Um, and if you actually look at it, a lot of the people, when they're just predominantly eating animal proteins, well, if you've got fermentation issues within the gut lining, so you do have problems with things like vegetable fibers and uh, carbohydrate molecules, well, of course, you're going to feel better when you're eating a higher amount of animal protein, okay? Um, and so people with autoimmune conditions, people with fermentation issues like gut motility problems, uh, and so, you know, um, gut-related issues like SIBO, once again, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, well, of course, they're going to feel better eating more animal proteins and animal fats because, the, the, essentially the, the, the food that they're consuming is not sitting there and not fermenting for a long period of time and actually causing more complications with the, the bacterial overgrowth and the motility issues that they have in the gut, okay? Because I don't dispute that some people might sit a little bit more down the spectrum of doing better on a plant-based and a vegan outline. Now, I think it's an extremely small percentage. Likewise, do I think people sit a little bit more down the other end where they're a little bit more carnivore-based, um, a little bit more animal fats? Yes, I, I think there's an element that do. Now, some people might be a little bit more in the middle where we're essentially more of an omnivore diet and according to things like ancestral, what's going on with your, um, your biochemistry, so things like your mineral balance where particular minerals like potassium and sodium and magnesium all these things are sitting you might sit a little bit more down the spectrum of being um, you know somewhere between the omnivore and a little bit more plant plant-based and vegan based or you might sit down the spectrum of being a little bit more towards in between the omnivore and the and and the carnivore regime yeah okay I'm not disputing that yeah okay 
But once again, the gastrointestinal lining may push you into a, a, a greater extreme because of the complications that you've actually got going on in the gut. Yeah, and, and once again, like, uh, you know, why aren't we focusing on this, yeah, okay? Um, and I think it's a big mistake. And even when they do research and they're actually testing, you know, how we react to particular nutrients and foods, well, without actually testing the baseline, and the baseline should be what's going on with your epithelium and your mucosal cells and also your microbiome balance. Well, if you're not testing that and the, the person has, and I'll get back to this later, and the person has underlying opportunistic bacteria or like uh, pathogenic bacteria overgrowth that completely changes how you interact with that food and so we may actually do the testing finding that they're actually having this particular interaction but the reason they're having the interaction is because of the underlying gastrointestinal problems so surely to understand um, how that uh, research could be more accurate for starters is we need to test what's going on in the gut lining test the, the state of the epithelium, but also test the microbiome balance to make that more consistent, okay? But also to enable us to, to, to allow the individual to interact with the food properly, we need to heal those, those complications. We need to heal the epithelium and we need to, to realign the microbiome balance. So I've actually used the example first of if we're more down a, a plant-based and a vegan-based outline, well, this may actually come down to issues with the, with the paratel cells or the lining of the, the stomach, okay? And so some of the complications that might uh, occur in this instance is things like helicobacter overgrowth, okay? So that's a negative gram bacteria overgrowth. Um, and so LPS, like lipopolysaccharides, potentially can become a problem here, okay? Now, helicobacter uh, in, the, in the right amounts may have some... Um, benefits within the, the stomach, okay, but with an overgrowth, it actually does negatively affect the acidifying effects of hydrochloric acid, okay, and so if it's affecting the acidifying effects of hydrochloric acid, this means when you eat things that require hydrochloric acid, it's going to make you feel lethargic and tired and heavy, okay, and also, also nausea, and you're going to be off put by the thought of eating that particular food group or that particular uh, macronutrient. But once again, that doesn't mean you don't need it. Okay, it's, well, like we really need to understand that. Yeah, okay. And so if you look at hydrochloric acid, like hydrochloric acid actually helps with a particular enzyme. Okay, and that's called pepsinogen. And pepsinogen is a precursor to pepsin. And then um, basically, pepsin actually helps us take, you know, protein. Break and essentially break it down into what we call polypeptides, which is chains of amino acids of 50 to 100 plus. And then we break it down further because we're just taking something large and we're breaking it down into smaller molecules. It's such an important function because then it just gives us a building blocks for all these uh, other compounds that we just need to function. It's just, it's just that simple. Okay. And so when we're, once we've broken it down into to peptides, which are basically chains of amino acids from 2 to 50, then essentially... Yeah, it gets further broken down in the small intestine by the cells in our small intestine and eventually with the assistance of particular enzymes like carboxypeptidase, dipeptidase, aminopeptidase, then we break it down into the singular amino acid molecules that once again we need for the building blocks for tripeptides like glutathione, hormones, neurotransmitters, yeah, okay? So this is a really important function, okay? But also hydrochloric acid allows us to separate the fats from the protein, but also allows us to separate B12 
from the protein as well. Now, B12 is so essential for things like DNA, RNA, um, and so we also need it. It's essentially an, a, such an important cofactor. It actually helps with things like serotonin, dopamine. It actually helps to protect the central nervous system. It actually helps with things like cranial nerves. The, the, the biggest cranial nerve in the body, which is the 10th cranial nerve, is the vagus nerve, and the vagus nerve just actually helps with the release of the contents in the stomach into the small intestine, okay? Um, and, and just helping with the, with, the, with the parasympathetic nervous system like rest and digest. So essentially just helping with gut motility, okay? And so the list goes on. Like B12 essentially just plays a role in every cell in our body, okay? So that's, and, and, and essentially when it helps to separate the B12, um, and we also actually need B12 to actually help with taurine, and taurine essentially is because we need B12 to help us synthesize taurine, and taurine is a precursor to GABA. Once again, gamma aminobutyric acid that actually just helps relax and calm and calm the brain down, which is a big thing. You actually look at a lot of people and they just can't calm and relax their brain at night, and hence why they're sort of like tired and wired and restless, and maybe they wake up at like 2 a.m. Um, because their brain is just going 100 miles an hour. Yeah, okay. And so you can just see how many different functions like B12. So if we're struggling and we're and we're, you know, we're struggling with that process because we're not producing sufficient amounts of hydrochloric acid, helping with the enzymes. Okay, you can see how this can affect so many different functions in the body. Okay, now also um, there's a particular glycoprotein which is a polypeptide molecule and a carbohydrate molecule and and glycoproteins are just transport molecules and essentially this. Uh, uh, transport molecule or this glycoprotein called intrinsic factor binds to the B12, transports the B12 down into the small intestine where it's uptake in the epithelium and, and then into the bloodstream where it's uptaken by the cells. Okay, So a lot of people when they've got essentially like hydrochloric acid issues, which may be because of the H. pylori complications, may be because of the damage to the paratel cells of the epithelium in the stomach lining, well, they may start to um, to get complications when they're consuming, you know, things like animal proteins, like belching, like bad breath, like stomach uh, distinction, so distinction in the gut, like bloating in the gut, very very high up. Okay, once again, they're going to be off put by the. Th- thought of eating things like animal protein they're going to get things like nausea lethargy and, and essentially they're getting things like um, they're going to have things like meat fibers um, in their stool because they're essentially just not breaking it down they're not processing it properly so if if you're experiencing these complications and we're also going to understand that actually producing hydrochloric acid is actually one of the most metabolically demanding processes in the body and it's really dependent on our Uh, ability to get more oxygen to the mitochondria if we get more oxygen to the mitochondria then that actually allows us to produce more byproducts so things like carbon dioxide h2o now carbon dioxide when it mixes with water in the body it actually forms bicarbonate so 90 percent of the carbon dioxide in the body is in the form of bicarbonate now bicarbonate is one of the key ingredients that we need for hydrochloric acid so if we're chest breathers and we're chronically stressed well guess what that actually impedes on our ability to produce hydrochloric acid and that's going to affect our ability to metabolize and break down things like animal proteins so do you think that may affect us really wanting to consume those things and how are we going to feel when we do consume those things? Well, once again, we're just not going to feel great. We're going to get bloating. We're going to be lethargic. So, of course, 
in that in that short period of time, the best thing to do is to avoid it. But once again, we need to actually fix the problems. And that's what we're not doing. We're just avoiding it. Okay, we just go, well, I'm just not going to eat animal proteins and maybe we start, might start to encounter problems, especially in areas like our immune system because the, one of my arguments, and I'm not going to get too much into the, the, the vegan and the, and the, and the sort of um, you know, animal protein debate, okay, because I do respect people's, um, you know, people's choices and I just want to make sure that they've got the right information so that they can do that particular nutrition outline to the best of their ability and, 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 and feel as optimal as they can, yeah, okay? But if we actually look at one of the key building blocks that you need for stem cells to actually help with things like white blood cells, help with red blood cells, help with particular types of white blood cells like granulocytes, like neutrophils, and also help with things like lymphocytes. So it actually help, helps with things like uh, lymphoid stem cells and myeloid stem cells. One of the key building blocks is vitamin A. Okay, Vitamin A being a fat-soluble vitamin, now a lot of people say, well, I don't need to get the vitamin A from an animal source. So I don't need to get it from things like slow-cooked meats. I don't need it to get it from cod liver oil. Well, there's a particular uh, genotype, and that's called the BCM01 gene. Yeah, okay. Now, 45% of the population carry that gene, which means they struggle to convert where they think that they're going to get their vitamin A from, and that's better carotene, which is a carotenoid that you get in orange-colored fruits and vegetables. So they don't make that conversion, which means it affects their vitamin A, and in turn, that's going to affect their stem cells, and it's going to affect their white blood cells. And so that might actually show up in them having poor immunity and immunosuppression. Okay, so people just need to understand, like, which category do you essentially fall into, yeah, okay? Now, if, one, if I get him back to having the, so, and so there's un, other underlying conversion complications that could be going on, okay? And that's why I just like to educate people, where do you sit? So you can make essentially the best choices, um, for, for you as an individual, and that's what it comes down to. And if you do want to do that, what do you need to do to make sure you can do it properly and you're supporting the things that you um, may not actually be doing extremely well? Yeah, okay? So, so once again, if you do have these underlying issues with the epithelium and the paratel cells in the stomach lining um, and you have underlying bacterial overgrowth, potentially things like Helicobacter, H. pylori, then that, you know, especially what I said with the, with the H. pylori, that that's affecting the acidifying effects of hydrochloric acid. And that means you're just really um, struggling to break down animal protein properly. But essentially what do we need to fix here? We need to fix, help with the paratel cells, so actually help with the epithelium, help with the damage there. We need to clear out the potential issues with something like um, H. pylori. I don't really want to get down into the full nuts and bolts of a, a protocol with H. pylori. It's a conversation for another time. But that's ultimately what we need to fix. Okay? And now, if we fix that, then underlying, we start to really get to where you may actually be sitting from an ancestral, even from a, whether you're a fast oxidizer or a slow oxidizer, okay, then we'll start to get to where you're, how you actually metabolize nutrients because, once again, 
the complications in the gastrointestinal system is sort of masking that. Okay, if I go down the other end of the spectrum, okay, like people who are responding well because the carnivore diet is becoming extremely uh, popular, but people with autoimmune conditions, now if you've got autoimmune conditions, uh, heavily linked to things like negative gram bacteria overgrowth. And so the negative gram bacteria overgrowth, well, SIBO can be a big problem here, so that's uh, overgrowth of things like Escherichia coli, bacteroids in the, in the small intestine. But uh, overgrowth in the large intestine, you know, particular complications like Enterobacter, Citrobacter, Klebsiella, if you actually look at, um, and so they're the, they're, the, they're the broad groups or the broad names for those particular types of negative gram bacteria or pathogenic strains of negative gram bacteria. But if you look at something like Klebsiella, and, and Klebsiella definitely can cause issues, things like pneumonia, urinary tract infections, you know, colds and flus, sinusitis, okay, so but they can definitely be some of the symptoms, but Klebsiella definitely linked to things like ankylosing spondylitis, rheumatoid arthritis, you look at Citrobacter fundi complex, which is a particular mutated strain of Citrobacter, linked to multiple sclerosis, but once again, if you look a little bit further into Citrobacter, it's actually, it's actually linked to uh, brain abscesses, so abscesses in the brain, it's definitely linked to... Um, you know, and so that would, would correlate with things like lesions in the brain and something like uh, multiple sclerosis, okay? So, uh, and then you look at something like Enterobacter and um, um, particular strains of Enterobacter uh, have been linked to things like uh, Kawasaki disease. So a lot of these um, negative gram bacteria overgrowths have definitely been linked to a lot of autoimmune conditions, yeah, okay? And so if I'm... Um, have have these underlying negative gram bacteria complications, well, prebiotics, and especially things like FOSs, like fruit to oligosaccharides, so things like onions and garlic and artichoke, uh, wheat, barley, bananas, chicory roots, asparagus, um, a lot of these things, which I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying are bad, but they're essentially feeding the overgrowth of the negative gram bacteria and that's causing the negative gram, gram bacteria to release more byproducts into your system. And essentially, you look at the LPS molecules, well, they can definitely cause more damage to the epithelium and the gastrointestinal lining and essentially um, get up into the brain and cause more inflammation in the brain and, and cause um, you know, complications like neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, okay? So if you are essentially, because of the, the bacterial uh, imbalances that you've got and that's affecting how you're interacting with the um, with the the prebiotics and um, things that essentially shouldn't be harmful within the body then of course it's going to cause you a lot of disruption when you're consuming these certain types of uh, foods but once again my argument is it doesn't mean they're bad and you're going to actually have to correct those particular um, particular imbalances and you you have to correct what most likely caused the imbalances in the first place which essentially was your terrain so the actual structure within the mucosal lining in the gastrointestinal tract yeah okay um and so 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 people with like autoimmune of course like certain things like vegetable fibers and particular carbohydrate molecules are going to be problematic now also if i've got fermentation issues within the within the gut so i've got uh issues like 
gut motility problems, okay? And so that might mean, you know, that I've got um, problems with the enteric nervous system. That's a nervous system that exists between your, your gut and your brain, okay? Because you look at the enteric nervous system, well, part of the enteric nervous system is the vagus nerve. Now, the vagus nerve I already talked about helps with the release of the contents from the stomach into the small intestine, that plays a big role in motility, okay? But also the enteric nervous system helps with particular neurons, so it actually helps with afferent neurons, efferent neurons, interneurons, that actually sort of helps to step in for the central nervous system when the central nervous system is cooked, yeah, okay? And that's why a lot of the time when people do things like Olympic weightlifting and, 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 and particular training systems that requires a lot of your central nervous system, okay, and they also have a compromised enteric nervous, enteric nervous system that they're just cooked overall, okay? Uh, and that's why a lot of the time I'm getting people to do more things like calisthenics, body weight, um, things like strongman training where you're t- essentially taking out eccentric loading, okay, because it's just not putting as much pressure on the central nervous system because they don't really have the support of the enteric nervous system. But you've also essentially got motor neurons and motor neurons um, essentially actually help with intestinal churning. And in particular, enteric hormones that are producing, um, in this instance, areas like the, the stomach and actually the, the small intestine, well, one of these enteric hormones which is producing the enteroendocrine cells is modelin. And modelin just helps with gut motility, so it actually helps with intestinal churning. So if I've got, and if I've just damaged the epithelium and I've affected the contractile proteins that actually help with the churning, okay, even damaging even areas underlying like the mucosa and the submucosa, then that's just affecting, once again, how I interact with the food, okay, and then that means the food potentially, and even having like damage to the brush borders, that means uh, potentially the food is going to sit there, it ferments, and then it encourages bacterial overgrowth. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's always pathogenic because it can be non-pathogenic. You can have essentially an overgrowth when it comes to SIBO, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. You can have an overgrowth of things like lactobacillus. Okay, And so that's actually going to affect, so if we look at foods that sit there and ferment for a longer period of time, well, this is essentially why the low FODMAP regime really came about. It's all to do with how long those particular foods sit there and ferment for, and the longer they sit there and ferment, okay, then they would become very problematic for someone who has something like SIBO. Um, and and all, so, so essentially for people who just have motility issues, okay? So... But once again, is that the problem of the food or is it a, a problem of what's going on with your gastrointestinal lining? Yeah, okay. And so these people just feel better initially going on to a low FODMAP regime. But the problem is you look at like high FODMAP foods. Well, high FODMAP foods just actually help with a lot of your microbiome. We actually, we actually need them to actually help with diversity. Help, and that's what we need. We need diversity. And then the diversity helps with so many different functions. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, and... That's a conversation uh, definitely for another podcast for how many different functions, you know, particular singular micro um, uh, bacteria strains can be involved in, yeah, okay? And so once again, we want to get it to a point where we're actually having more diversity, yeah, okay? And so people who have these fermentation issues and damage to the brush borders and issues with the contractile proteins, damage to the enteric nervous system, problems with the release of particular uh, enteric hormones that help with motility. Well, 
do you think they're potentially going to feel better with foods that don't sit there and ferment for a longer period of time? Okay, so contrary to what most people think, well, animal proteins and animal fats, they don't sit there and ferment for a longer period of time. Like they're more, and hence why they're just more bioavailable for uh, amino acids and, and, and nutrients, okay? Um, but I'm not saying that they're, they're better because we obviously need, um, we obviously need for, for micronutrients and you can, you can get the amino acids out of plant sources and carbohydrate sources. I'm not disputing that. But if those things, because you look at carbohydrates, well, one quart of uh, carbohydrates, when it just comes to the fermentation process, equals 10 quarts of hydrogen ions. And so if something is sitting there and fermenting um, and most of that fermentation should be taking place in your large intestine, then you're producing more hydrogen ions. The problem with the excess amounts of hydrogen ions is the hydrogen ions stimulate these receptors called TRPV1 receptors that cause vasorelaxation, which means they cause like gastric dumping where you get things like diarrhea. So hence why they talk more around the sort of like um, hydrogen-based SIBO, okay? Now, to try and deal with the excess amounts of hydrogen ions, you start to proliferate more um, uh, bacteria called Arche, and there's all these different strains of Arche. The Arche helps to base- basically get rid of the excess amounts of hydrogen ions, but they also release their, uh, their own byproducts, which is methane, okay? And so that causes potentially things like bloating, abdominal cramping, you know, flatulence, belching, all these types of problems, okay? So, and so people start to associate that these foods that sit there and ferment because, once again, you've just got a higher fermentation rate with, um, you know, vegetable fibres, fruit, fruit fibres and carbohydrate molecules that they just say, well, they're causing me aggravation in the gastrointestinal lining, so they must be bad, okay? And the issue is not with the with the vegetable fibres and the carbohydrate molecules, especially if they're coming obviously from the right sources, good clean carbohydrates, the issue is coming from your poor motility, your damage to the enteric nervous system, damage with the epithelium, the, the, the microbiome imbalances and the bacterial overgrowth that you've actually created in the small intestine. That's where the real issue is, is coming from. And so people... They're not fixing the issue. They just go onto a carnivore diet. They go onto a heavy animal protein and animal fat-based regime. They go, I feel good. This must be the answer for the rest of my life. Well, there's a good chance that's not the answer for the rest of your life. And at some point, you're going to start to get issues associated with high consumption of things like animal proteins. So, Because you once again, you really shift the microbiome balance and you are going to get particular protein fermenting microbiome um, and, and, and when you're shifting the microbiome and you're getting higher amounts of these protein fermenting microbiome, they start to release things like gases and you actually can get a thing called putrefaction, which essentially is like rotting meat in your, in your gastrointestinal tract because you're essentially you're struggling to break it down. Okay? And then you may actually get symptoms that are very similar to something like uh, SIBO. So you're getting bloating, you're getting fluctuance, yeah, okay? And so somewhere down the line, you're going to start to, to, to get these complications, yeah, okay? So you can see how when we've got these issues within the gastrointestinal lining, that just forces us into these extremes. Now, I'm not saying that they may, may not 
may not serve a purpose to reduce the inflammatory load because essentially that's what we want to do because if we reduce the inflammatory load, we ease pressure off the brush borders uh, so we actually um, uh, don't cause more bluntening of the brush borders which can impede on the release of enzymes helping us break down uh, macromolecules and also we can ease the pressure of the pancreatic beta cells in the, in, the, in the pancreas, so helping with blood sugar management regulation and any dysregulation with things like insulin. So we want to reduce the inflammatory load, but we want to get to the, uh, the bottom of the issue, and we actually want to fix, in the instance of the carnivore and the, uh, and the, the more animal protein and animal fat regime, we want to fix the fermentation issues. We want to fix the motility issues. We want to realign the microbiome balance, yeah, okay? And the issue with the, where we've maybe really struggling with animal protein uh, and we're more plant-based, more, more vegan-based, then we want to fix the paratel cells in the mucosal lining of the stomach, uh, see if there's potential issues like H. pylori, helicobacter overgrowth. Now fix those issues and then let's really see what's underlying. Um, and one last thing that I sort of want to uh, leave you with, okay, because ultimately it's going to come down to we have to do the testing to really find out what the, what the, what the major problems are, are going on within the gastrointestinal line and just fix it. So you can actually see with what I'm talking about, this, when it comes down to the remedies, just comes down to identifying what the issues are and then applying the protocol that actually fixes those issues. Yeah, okay? Because we want to get to a point where we can just pro- provide diversity, food rotation. Okay? Um, and you've got to remember like when people talk about things like food sensitivities, your food sensitivities change every three to four months. Um, and so... Hence why when people do things like food sensitivity testing, um, you know, yes, those foods might essentially be causing you aggravation, but understand you also might be getting aggravation by, by those particular foods because you've got negative gram bacterial overgrowth, you've got bacterial issues, you've got issues with the epithelium, and that's why it's actually causing, um, you know, uh, immune responses within the gastrointestinal lining, yeah, okay? Um, and so you just avoiding those foods for the rest of your life, okay, is, 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 is definitely not going to be the answer, okay? So, and then eventually over time, we want to apply just diversity and food rotation, and that helps with the microbiome balance, but also it doesn't help, it, it, it stops causing uh, like, an, a, like an antibody response or an antigen response within the gastrointestinal lining, okay? But... If I look at a, a key example of like how your whole microbiome balance can completely change how you interact with food, well, if you look at the instance of, um, and I'm just going to use the example of um, the you know choline-rich foods, so choline-rich foods, so vitamin B4, um, which actually helps with things like acetylcholine, so that helps with the parasympathetic nervous system, helps with muscle contraction as a neurotransmitter, it's excitatory in the brain, inhibitory in the cardiovascular system. That's, you know, really vital functions, yeah, okay? But choline-rich foods, um, and, and, and this is also what I'm talking about here, also applies to particular compounds like L-carnitine, betaine, yeah, okay? Now, choline-rich foods, which would be things like duck eggs, chicken eggs, um, you know, seafood, well, if you look at the conversion, we actually would convert the 
the compound like choline, and we would convert it into things like acetylcholine, which help, helps with all those particular functions. Now, of course, you can produce too much acetylcholine, and so you have other conversion processes where you would convert the choline in, into another compound, which is called TMAO, which is trimethylamine N-oxide. Now, everyone thinks TMAO is a bad thing, but actually, it actually has benefit, to, like uh, cardiovascular benefits, actually helps with as- aspects of blood flow and blood pressure, okay, in the right amounts. But if I've got conversion issues where I'm converting more of the choline into TMAO, yeah, okay, the problem here is that when you're producing too much TMAO, then that can cause things like atherosclerosis and plaquing, leading to cardiovascular problems, you know, heart disease and, and, and these types of issues. Now, the association that is made is that they may do the testing on eggs, um, seafood, and then they associate with the consumption of these types of animal proteins actually causes you to produce more TMAO. So arthrosclerosis so you, the, the only answer here can be is that these things are bad and that you should just eradicate them out of your nutrition outline the problem being is if i have particular negative gram bacteria overgrowth and understand people who are highly stressed people who have damage to the gastrointestinal lining one of the most common microbiome imbalances is negative gram bacteria overgrowth and so if you actually look at one of these particular negative gram bacteria or the pathogenic strains of negative gram bacteria, enterobacter, now I'm not demonizing it, okay, but enterobacter can cause you to convert more choline into more TMAO, essentially causing more plaquing, okay, Uh, and, and complications like atherosclerosis. Now, what we need to ask ourselves here, is that the issue of the chicken eggs and the duck eggs and the seafood, or is that the issue of the interaction that you have with the particular molecules in those foods, which essentially for me are not really that bad, okay, and have a lot of good properties. And because you're interacting with it poorly, that's causing you to produce more particular, as I said, not bad compounds like TMAO causing the complications like atherosclerosis. And so what do we really have to fix here? Once again, is it just the eradication of the particular food? So once again, we get, go down to food avoidance. And if we're going down to food avoidance, this is really affecting the diversity that we're getting with protein molecules and fibers and potentially causing more issues with um, uh, microbiome diversity and causing like antibody response and antigen response. Or do we really have to fix the anterior back to overgrowth? And ultimately what I'm saying is that we need to fix the interior back. We need to establish is there, a, is there an overgrowth of the negative gram bacteria or the interior back to overgrowth and we need to identify that, fix that and that will completely change how we interact with the food. And it's just like there's just way more exa- examples of this. If you've got intestinal permeability, then you struggle with things like high sulfur foods. You, you, you struggle with fructose because you, you have problems uh, with the GLUT5 protein, um, and the GLUT5 protein, when, when it's absorbed into the apical part of the mucosal cell, the epithelium, it actually helps us metabolize dietary fructose. So all of a sudden you struggle with fruit, fructose, so you, you're going to struggle with fruit. Yeah, okay? You struggle with things like nightshades, so you struggle with lectin, you struggle with lap, uh, saponin, you, trouble, you struggle with uh, capsaicin, um, you struggle with 
sugar molecules, you, you struggle with alcohol, and, and once again, is it because the alcohol is bad? No, but alcohol gets converted to acetaldehyde. The acetaldehyde is shrinking the epithelium, so you're losing more surface area in the gastrointestinal line. It's just causing more complications. You struggle with the gliden molecule, so this is to do with gluten. It's not the devil, and in good quality sources, like things like sourdough, triticum, uh, triticum durum wheat, things like rye, because the gliden concentration is lower, doesn't cause as much aggravation and widening of the top section of the intracellular tight junctions which is the the tight junctions not causing as much issues with uh, tight junction proteins like zonulin okay so once again you can see that if i've got that gastrointestinal problem i start struggling with all these types of um food compounds and you know another one that you struggle with is is lectins okay lectins being glycosides they, in a healthy gut environment, they go through the intracellular tight junctions unchanged. So you can imagine when I've got more hyperpermeability, they're going through there on a more regular basis and just causing uh, biochemical chaos. Yeah, okay? But the, the, the point that I'm trying to get across is then all of a sudden you've got to avoid this food group, you've got to avoid that food group. Okay? And ultimately, your food window is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller, less diversity, now more complications with the microbiome balance. Okay? And so... The, the point that I'm trying to get across here, okay, is is that sustainable? It's not sustainable, okay? And really what do we have to fix here? We have to fix the gut lining, okay? We have to fix the epithelium. We have to, to correct the foundations. And hence why I've established a five-stage leaky gut protocol. I've seen phenomenal results with this, okay? And... Um, you know, this ranges from a multitude of different people, yeah, okay? And then we need to actually apply diversity with good quality foods um, coming from the, the right sources. And once we get that diversity, we, we help with microbiome, um, micro, microbiome balance and helping with all these other functions like hormonal balance, neurotransmitter balance, okay? So ask ourselves, is that a better approach or is the better approach to be reactive and force ourselves into these extreme nutritional outlines? And that's the question. And I think we really know what the answer is. So thanks for listening, guys, um, and speak to you soon. Take care.